1: Guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Great. Uh, Are you having deja Good to talk to you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you guys, we know the first half of this story like the back of our hand. For sure. Um, Yeah, the end of it might come as a surprise to us. I'm just kidding, but. we're redoing this from yesterday. Uh, We had some audio issues, but Mandy, this is like the first time we've had, oh gosh, I don't need to say this, but it's been like a year, right? It's been a long time. Yes,
1: it has been a long time. And this time it was my fault, totally my fault. And uh, yeah, well, I wish I would realize things happen before we've already been going for 40 minutes and almost finished the entire story.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? We didn't go the whole thing. So we we figured it out. It's all fine. I always like very much want whoever like as having something go wrong on their end, like to comfort them as much as possible, because whenever it's on my end, I need somebody to comfort me as much yeah, as, as you know, you're just
1: panicking. Like the whole yeah, time.
0: I'm. <laughs> as soon as I realized something was
1: wrong and I saw that we were already 40 minutes in, I was like, oh gosh, oh gosh, how do I, bra- how do I break
0: this news? <laughs> no. And I'm totally fine. Cause I'm always expecting it to happen to me. So I'm like, no, great. If it happens to you, that means that whenever it happens to me, I don't have to feel bad. This is great for me. Like, right. I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> Yeah, no. So it happens It happens to the best of us, and it happens to us. So uh, we're here. We have a great day. This is another one of those just out there stories I've never heard before. Super interesting. Mandy, would you like to kick it off for the second time in two days?
1: So it takes a really special person to work with kids and the elderly. And anybody who has worked with either one will tell you what a hard but very rewarding career path it can be. And some people are really just built for it. I'm not one of them, but the woman in our story today was. Her name was Becky Klein. Becky was the kind of person anybody would be proud to call their friend. She was known for constantly going out of her way to help others, which manifested itself into a career of doing just that. Becky was born on April 4th, 1974, in Chicago, Illinois. She and her sister Melanie grew up really close, being raised in Streamwood by their loving parents, Marilyn and Jeffrey. Both Becky and Melanie were so close-knit with their mom that even into adulthood, they talked to her multiple times a day. I don't know if you ever went through a phase like this, Melissa, but when I was in my early 20s, when I first kind of moved out on my own, and I was – especially when I had my oldest son, you know, I was still only in my early 20s, and I talked to my mom on the phone every single day, and and now I don't anymore, but like thinking back to that time, I am like Kind of shocked that I did that. I'm like, what was I doing? Calling my mom every single day. But I I did choose your did lifeline.
0: Yeah. Like, that's how I feel. When I first moved down to Orlando and I didn't really know anybody, I would call my mom like three times a day. And then having kids, same thing. Like And just for no early reason. On. Yeah. And now like as an adult who like, I can't imagine finally getting freedom and then like one of your kids calling you 75 <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure they love it and I'll love it and all that. But yeah, no, I, I totally get what you mean. Cause I don't, I wish I talked to my mom more now, but it's yeah, me life. too. I know. Oh, we're getting too deep now. All right. We, yeah. we need to call our moms. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1992,
1: Becky graduated from Streamwood high school and went straight to Illinois state university where she earned a bachelor's in recreational therapy four years later. After college, she started working at a place called Range of Motion, where she was the director of activities. Becky was very invested in her career, and she really wanted to make a difference in the lives of those that she was helping. She actually had this whole vision that involved developing a program where geriatric populations and pediatric populations could benefit from each other. And I just love this idea so much because you just think about how much the elderly really love seeing kids and young people. And young kids seem to really like the elderly too. They They just get along so well with each other. So to use these two in, in a therapeutic way is just
0: amazing. It's like at Christmas time, you go to like one of your kids, I think your kids were with us when we all did this, like going to sing at different um, yes. nursing facilities yes. and stuff. And it's just amazing on both ends, how much the kids love it and how much the um, adults love it.
1: It is. It's amazing. So in her time at Range of Motion, Becky began to make her dream a reality by establishing a senior daycare program and facility. Eventually, she was able to coordinate a program where the clients of the child daycare and the senior daycare participated together. Becky loved this job, and the people that she worked with, both coworkers and the clients, loved her just as much. In 2000, Becky was engaged to a man, but a new friendship with a coworker named Nicole Sheriff turned into something more. Nicole was 19 when she took a job at Range of Motion doing manual labor type of work, and she met Becky, who was 25 at the time. So Becky took this new girl under her wing at work, and they ended up becoming really good friends but by the end of the year, it was clear that there was more between them than just friendship. At this point in Nicole's life, she had never dated another woman, but most of the people in her life already assumed that she was a lesbian. Friends said that Nicole did date a few men casually, but they got the impression it was just because she felt like she had to in order to fit in. But in December of 2000, Becky and Nicole attended a work Christmas party where they realized that they actually had a deeper connection and they wanted to explore it further. So, Becky ended up breaking things
0: off with her fiance and she started dating Nicole. When the women first started dating, there wasn't really any sort of coming out conversation that happened. They really didn't make it a big ordeal about their new relationship, but everyone was supportive and accepting of the two of them together. Becky's family accepted Nicole, and Nicole's family did the same. According to everyone that knew them, Becky and Nicole were very much in love. So much so that people thought of them as being a married couple, even though same-sex marriage wasn't legal at the time, so they didn't have this piece of paper to make it official. There was only one time that Becky's sister, Melanie, could ever recall an argument between Becky and Nicole. It was back in March of 2002, and Becky had said at the time that she wanted to break up with Nicole, but after Nicole threatened to, quote, drink herself to death, end quote, Becky decided to stay with her. Other people that were close to the women, including Becky's mom and the couple's roommate, Erica, say they never saw any major disagreements between them. Erica had actually been living with Becky and Nicole since shortly after they began dating each other. The three women rented a house for about a year, and then Becky and Nicole ended up buying a house together, and Erica moved in with them there too. The three of them actually lived together for about four or five years. In May of 2006, Becky and Nicole bought another house on the 200 block of North Harvard Avenue in Villa Park. This was the house they really planned to settle down in. They wanted to renovate it and make a life together. So it seems like at this point, Erica stopped living with them. So they no no longer really have this roommate. But instead of this being a happy time that strengthened the already strong bond between Nicole and Becky, things actually started to take a turn for the worst. Nicole began to withdraw, and she started spending more time working on her Mustang than she did with Becky. Nicole also started staying up late, and she was surfing the internet at all hours of the night. At the same time, Becky was starting to pull away and have thoughts about wanting a family and wanting to propel her life forward in that way, which was something that Nicole had talked about and said she really wasn't ready for yet. In 2007, Nicole had an accident where she slipped and fell on some ice and hurt her back which put her out of work and solely reliant on Becky to pay all of the couple's bills. During this time, Nicole pulled even further away in the relationship.
1: But Nicole actually may have had a secret reason behind the distance that she was putting between herself and Becky. In March of 2006, months before they bought the second house, Nicole, who was now 25, had actually met another woman. It was a 19-year-old named Rosa Daro. Rose went by the name Hollywood on MySpace, which (laughs) Melissa and I talked about in the first take of this recording, how we had forgotten that MySpace had these fun little handles, these little nicknames that people gave themselves with all the little squiggly line and the stars and heart symbols, you know, wrapped around them. And how fun of a time that was.
0: (laughs) I still feel like um, that was such an aggressive time, though. If you think back, like, you go to somebody's page and they have like 37 videos playing. So as you scroll, it's just everything going off at once. Like my favorite song this week. And then they broke up with their, you know, boyfriend. And then it's, uh, this is a song about being dumped. And they're all like playing immediately. Like that was such a terrible time in everyone's (laughs) lives. And like the top eight friends, I miss that too. Uh, Top eight. No, I don't. Did you make someone's (laughs) top eight?
1: And then they had to expand it to 16 because people were
0: getting really upset. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I remember like a friend, and I was an adult, an, an actual adult, and a friend actually wrote me and was like, I don't understand why I'm not in your top eight. You're in my top three. And I wanted to be like, well, it's not really a top three; It's a top eight. Sorry, you didn't make it. But <laughs> I hated it. That's so terrible. much stress to put on I people. Know, I know. It's terrible.
1: So good old MySpace is where Nicole and Rose met each other, and their conversation started out just being online on MySpace, but over the course of about a month- things progressed into texting and talking on the phone until eventually Nicole and Rose decided it was time to meet up in person. Nicole went to Rose's house to meet her for the first time. They started off just being friends, but eventually they did start to have a sexual relationship. Meanwhile, Rose had no idea that Nicole was not only in a long-term relationship with Becky, but that they also owned a house together and lived together. In June of 2006, Rose actually went over to Nicole and Becky's house for the first time. And Nicole told her that, you know, hey, I have a roommate who lives here, referring to her longtime girlfriend and co-owner of their home, um, that that's her roommate. So Rose did spend the night at Nicole's house several times, but it was always when Becky wasn't home. During the course of this relationship with Rose, Nicole said a lot of really bizarre things. For one, she claimed that she was a Villa Park firefighter and that she had also fought fires in New York alongside her brother. And not only that, but she and her brother were responders to the scene of the 9-11 attacks. In reality, Nicole had never been a firefighter anywhere, ever in her life. And what's more, she didn't even have a brother named Danny. But in this very elaborate made-up story about her life that she gave to Rose, her brother Danny was a main character.
0: I will never understand people that want to put themselves in situations they were never in, but especially 9-11. I guess like, it's for attention, but
1: I don't know. That's like the is. worst attention seeking like thing. I just, I can't imagine lying and saying
0: that. No, especially because there are people that were really there. What was the um, documentary called? I think it was The Woman Who Wasn't There. It was on Netflix for a while. It was I, about think I a watched lady. that years ago. Yeah, who claimed to have been in it and her husband or fiance was in it and he died and it was this whole elaborate thing. And then there was a comedian on the show, The League. He also said that he was in nine eleven. and then whenever like people like looked into his background, they were like, hey, you, no, you weren't, weren't even living there at the time. And he said, oh yeah, whoops, my wife worked near there and I, you know, decided to say that like, what? That I don't get so it. Weird. so weird. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So in addition to Nicole's
1: fake brother, Danny, um, you know, working alongside her as a firefighter in New York, she claimed that he also bought her house. And the reason was that she needed to take care of him because he was also very sick with Wilson's disease. So not only does Nicole have a fake brother, but now the fake brother also has a terminal <laughs> illness, which is just like, wow. okay, there's too many layers here going on now. This The lie is building on itself like way too yeah. much. So if you don't know what Wilson's disease is, I found this really interesting. According to the Mayo Clinic, it is a very rare inherited disorder that causes copper to accumulate in your liver, brain, and other vital organs. And copper is actually something we all have in our bodies, and it's really important in the development of healthy nerves, bones, collagen, and melanin. And we normally just absorb it through our food, of course, and excrete what we don't need. But people who have Wilson's disease cannot properly eliminate the copper. So it just accumulates and sometimes to a fatal level if it is not treated, which I am just like blown away by. It's just one of those weird like 101 ways your body can turn on you and and kill you. Like it's (laughs) like, what is going on here? (laughs) Like This is not something I would ever think that I needed to be concerned about. My body's like copper filtration system. I think you're good. If it's
0: inherited, you probably already know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you probably would know if it ran in your family. So this actually is a treatable disease when they catch it early and many that are diagnosed go on to live normal lives.
0: But it wasn't just her fake brother that Nicole said was suffering from the worst type of illness. She actually told her young girlfriend Rose that she herself was also dying from cancer and that she needed a liver transplant. When Rose asked Nicole for more information, such as what hospital she'd be having the procedure done at, Nicole wouldn't say, but she did tell Rose that if she were to die during surgery, she wanted her casket to have a firefighter symbol on it,
1: literally taking
0: this lie to the grave. Literally. Yeah. Yeah, literally. So it's probably obvious, but Nicole did not have liver cancer and she never underwent a transplant. Rose started to catch on when she realized that Nicole was drinking alcohol often, which is not something one would do if they were waiting in line (laughs) for a new liver. Like that's, oh my gosh. But telling these fake sob stories wasn't the only way that Nicole was manipulating Rose. She also told her how, like constantly how much she loved her and needed her and talked about buying a new house so that she and Rose and maybe some of Rose's family could live in it together. Throughout this whole charade, Nicole was also using fake MySpace accounts, as many as four different fake accounts. I love when people do this. Right? It's like very hardcore. Um, Essentially talking to herself and to Nicole to make it seem like Nicole has numerous people that are just vying for her affection and that she's really high in demand. which
1: (laughs) People are lining up to date her.
0: I know. In my wildest fantasies, wouldn't even. I'd be like, one person likes me? All right, that's about max I can go. <laughs> <laughs> so when Nicole was busy with Becky and she couldn't meet up with Rose, she would tell her that she was out of town, she was at firefighter training, or she was working at the fire station. Rose's mom eventually expressed her dislike for Nicole, and in the summer of 2006, Rose actually ended their relationship. But just a few months later, they were back to seeing each other again, and this continued into the following year, which was 2007. And Nicole and Rose's secret affair, it continued until March of 2007, when suddenly Nicole's longtime girlfriend, Becky, goes missing.
1: Becky's sister, Melanie, had showed up to the house that she shared with Nicole on March the 15th at about 4.30 in the afternoon. She came over because the plan was to help her sister set up for a birthday party that was going to be for Melanie's son the next weekend. Becky had agreed to host the party in their garage, but they had some cleaning to do and they wanted to decorate some for the party. So that day, Becky and her sister Melanie worked together while Nicole stayed inside and laid on the couch, allegedly due to her back injury. She didn't get up and help Becky and Melanie clean or decorate the garage that day. Once the sisters were finished for the day, Melanie stayed over for dinner and then she headed home at about 720 We're not exactly sure why, but Melanie tried to call Becky shortly after she left at around 8 p.m., but Becky didn't answer the phone. But of course, no big deal. They've just been together all afternoon, and Becky probably was just winding down for the night. But the next morning, Becky still hadn't responded to Melanie's call, and she got even more concerned because it was their typical morning routine to talk on the phone on their way into work, and Becky also missed that phone call. As we said before, she was really close with her family, so this combination of not getting an answer the night before and now Becky hasn't called at her usual time in the morning, something is feeling really wrong to Melanie, but she continued on with her day and just hoped that she would hear from her sister really soon. It wasn't until 11.30 that morning that the alarm was really raised when it came to Becky's whereabouts. She didn't show up for work and her boss John called her house to see what was going on. Nicole answered the phone and when John asked where Becky was, Nicole said that Becky had left for work that morning as usual and she couldn't imagine why she hadn't shown up at work. John told her that he tried to call Becky's phone but didn't get an answer and Nicole kind of brushed it off and said, yeah, you know, Becky's been having some problems with her phone in the recent days. But... This was a little bit surprising to John because he actually had talked to Becky on the phone several times in the last few days, and she never mentioned to him that she was having any issues whatsoever with her phone. Right after Nicole spoke with Becky's boss, she called Becky's mom to find out if she had heard from Becky at all and told her, you know, Becky's boss called, said that she hasn't shown up for work. We're just trying to figure out where she is. So Becky's mom said that she would talk to her husband and, of course, to Melanie to see if either one of them had heard from her. And when she found out that nobody had, she called Nicole back in a panic and said, everybody is now very worried. We all think that we need to start looking for Becky. Nicole said that she would get in her car and go driving around and try to look for Becky's work van.
0: About an hour and a half later, Nicole said she found the van parked on the street just around the corner from their house. The doors to the van were unlocked and the keys were in the ignition. Nicole also noticed that Becky's backpack was on the seat, but Becky was nowhere to be found. Nicole dialed 911 to report what she found and to report that her girlfriend was missing. So at this point, Becky's family, her mom, dad, sister, and brother-in-law, all had left their jobs and met at Becky and Nicole's house. By 2 o'clock, Officer Dave Subject arrived at the house to see a hysterical Nicole standing outside. She told Officer Subject that her girlfriend was missing. He asked her to tell her about what they did the night before, and Nicole said that it was really a normal night. They did things around the house, and then they went to bed. Nicole said Becky got up at her usual time and left for work around 6.30. Nicole said she went back to sleep, and she didn't wake up again until Becky's boss, John, called her at 11.30. Becky's sister and her husband showed up around 3 that afternoon, and by that time, the police were already speaking with their parents. Melanie went walking around the house, checking things out, and she ended up finding Becky's cell phone sitting on a window ledge in the basement. Eventually, lead detective Edward Zorick arrived and asked Nicole to tell him exactly what happened leading up to Becky's disappearance. Nicole said they had watched TV until about 10.30 the night before, and then they both went to bed. Nicole said she slept on the couch that night because of the whole bad back thing she had going on. So the next morning, Nicole said Becky kissed her goodbye before going off to work between 7 and 7.30 a.m. So we already have a little bit more detail, right? Like they watch TV together. Right. And then the timeline's even a little different. She said last time she left at 6.30 and now she says 7 to 7.30. So the detective asked Nicole what kind of relationship she and Becky had and Nicole said it was great. It was a very loving and very committed relationship and also there had been, quote, absolutely no infidelity which we always talk about, (laughs) not providing more information than you're asked. Um, And Nicole did not know not to do this, apparently. So Nicole agrees to let Detective Zorick look around the house and the garage, and nothing really looked unusual. But in the garage, he did find trash, totes, and more strewn about. It appeared that Becky had not finished cleaning up after her sister left the night before the disappearance. He also noticed that Nicole's Mustang was coated with a layer of dust, except for one spot on the trunk lid. This was a 1966 Mustang that Nicole was very proud of. She actually bought it to restore it. Evidently, the truck and the ignition have two different keys, and Nicole said she only ever had the ignition key, but never a trunk key. At some point in the initial investigation, Detective Zoric talked to the neighbor and learned that there had been a car parked in Becky and Nicole's driveway overnight, and this car belonged to Rose Sidero. When confronted about this, Nicole told police that Rose was a friend of hers who dropped her car off in the middle of the night because she was drunk, and then a friend came to pick her up from there. Nicole said she didn't mention this before because Rose was underage and she didn't want to get her in trouble for underage drinking. Nicole said she just doesn't know Rose's phone number or her address, which is wow, somebody leaves their car at your house and you just have no way of contacting the person and they're drunk so i hope they come back to where you are i mean like they must not have your information either it's a lot of yeah that's hopefully this works out (laughs) right yeah it doesn't seem likely right and so we still have more to get into the story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors
1: what's the key to consistent good hair days using ingredients that actually benefit your hair. Function of Beauty makes hair care products that are 100% customizable, made for your hair where it's at now and where you want it to go. If you aren't familiar with them, Function of Beauty is the world's first fully customizable hair care that actually creates your very own shampoos, conditioners, styling, and treatment formulas that are literally based on your hair now and where you want it to go in the future.
0: To get started, I took the quick hair quiz to help build my hair profile and selected five hair goals. My goals included volumizing and oil control. I ended up choosing my scent and my color, and you also have the option to go fragrance or dye free, and then I ordered. I'm obsessed with my shampoo and conditioner from Function of Beauty in Strike a Rose Scent. It was made just for me, and it's been flawless at keeping my hair silky smooth without looking greasy, which was always a problem I was having before with other over-the-counter stuff. Each bottle of Function of Beauty is designed to be just as unique as you are. And when we
1: say unique, we mean it. Function of Beauty has over 54 trillion possible formulations, and every single one of the 54 trillion is vegan and cruelty-free, and they never use sulfates or parabens. Plus, you can go completely silicone-free.
0: Say goodbye to generic hair care for good, today. Go to functionofbeauty.com moms to take your hair goals quiz, and you'll save 25% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com moms to let them know you heard about it from our show and get 25% off your first order. That's functionofbeauty.com moms to take your hair quiz and save 25% on your first order. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast.
1: And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See slash Capital bank. Capital One NA, member FDIC.
0: And now back to the episode.
1: Before the break, we were talking about the disappearance of Becky Klein. At this point, there are law enforcement involved and her family is very concerned and everybody is starting to do everything in their power to just get the word out that she is missing. Her family made a blog with Becky's picture in hopes that people would read it and then send in tips to the police. And they also handed out flyers and contacted news outlets to get the story out. Nicole called her friends and family to help in the search as well. Later that night, everyone was back at Nicole and Becky's house, including the police, and they wanted to use Nicole's laptop, which was in the dining room. But they couldn't get the internet to work. So Becky's brother-in-law, that's Melanie's husband, went down to the basement to reset the wireless connection, but that still didn't work. And eventually, they realized that the entire modem had been unplugged at some point. They didn't know why. They thought it was a little strange, possibly... It was to intentionally try and thwart the police, you know, in their investigation. So the next morning, Detective Zorik wanted to search the house and the garage more thoroughly. But Nicole actually protested this time, which was really weird because just the day before, she let them look around and there was no problem. The detectives insisted that they needed to continue looking for evidence. And eventually, Nicole agreed, but she was pretty reluctant about it. Once again, the officers asked Nicole about the key to the trunk of the old Mustang that was in the garage, but again, she said that she didn't have keys for that trunk. Luckily, though, one of the officers that was on the scene knew his way around a classic car, and he knew that there was actually another way that he could get into the trunk of that Mustang. If he went into the back seat and removed a speaker from the back deck, he could get into the trunk. So he got into the car and started removing the speaker. As soon as the officer got the speaker out and the light shined into the hole that it left, Detective Barcalow saw what he immediately recognized as a body, presumably Becky's. She was laying on her side in the fetal position with her hands bound behind her back with duct tape. Her feet were also bound and there was a plastic garbage bag over her head which was tightly secured with duct tape. Becky's eyes and mouth were covered with bandanas tied around them as well. Detective Barcalow went back inside the house to speak with Nicole. At first, he didn't tell her what they had found in the trunk, but instead he asked her one more time if she had any keys to the trunk of the car. And Nicole told them at this point that the locks had been changed and she did not have a key. When Nicole was informed that they had, in fact, found her girlfriend Becky's body in the trunk of the Mustang, Nicole became very upset.
0: Obviously, Nicole was taken straight down to the station for questioning When she was placed in an interview room, she really didn't seem to have a care in the world. She was really very nonchalant. She sat slouching in the chair as if she was just there kind of hanging out and relaxing. And so Nicole tells detectives the same story she gave originally, that she and Becky did things around the house, they went to bed, and that Becky got up and went to work the next morning. Investigators then pressed her and demanded to know how in the world someone could have hurt Becky and put her inside of Nicole's trunk, that no one apparently even had a key for without Nicole noticing that anything was happening. And so that's whenever Nicole said, actually, she did do something else that day. She actually left the house for a few hours to run errands after Becky left for work.
1: Okay. Well, I thought she was sleeping all morning.
0: <laughs> well, listen, you've never done any uh, sleepwalking, uh, sleep shopping? Yes. Yeah, any errand life, running? Mandy?
1: No. Yeah. I I have, yeah. <laughs>
0: So of course, this is a huge change in the story. She said before she'd been sleeping the whole time, as we said, until Becky's boss calls at 1130. And so officers are obviously very interested in everything that Nicole is saying, because she's basically digging herself a hole at this time. She can't get her story straight. It's making even less sense, you know, the more she goes on. So back at the house, detectives did find some more interesting discoveries. Two different sets of keys were found one on an end table in the living room, and then a single key was found in a dresser in the primary bedroom. Two of the keys they found ended up being for the trunk of the Mustang, which is bad news for Nicole because that now they know for sure she's lying to them about that. She has not one key to the trunk. She has two of them. <sighs> wow. So smart, yeah. Officers also found a stash of marijuana and evidence that Nicole was abusing prescription drugs, which later turned into allegations that she was actually selling drugs. They also found a roll of duct tape in the garage that was a match of the tape used to restrain Becky. Further investigations showed that the duct tape was actually purchased the same night that Becky was last seen, at about 7.34 p.m. from a Walgreens nearby. This means that the tape was purchased about 15 minutes after Becky's sister Melanie left for the night. And as we said before, Becky didn't answer her phone at 8 p.m. So we have a pretty tight window at this point.
1: Investigators canvassed the neighborhood to see if anybody saw anything, and one neighbor actually did. He said that he saw two vehicles at the house on the night of March 15th, and he knew that one of them belonged to Rose, but he said that there was actually another vehicle, a truck, that was parked there as well, and he didn't know who that vehicle belonged to. Rose was eventually tracked down and brought in for questioning, and she told the police that she had been with Nicole on the night of March 15th. She told them that their relationship had been sexual at one point and she wasn't sure what the true nature of Nicole's relationship with Becky really was, but she always thought that they were just roommates. Police told Rose that Becky had actually been found dead and that's when Rose decided to tell the detectives the truth. She said that she invited Nicole to go bowling that night, but Nicole actually declined the invitation because allegedly she had to work at the firehouse and didn't get off work until 7.30. As we know, she wasn't working at the firehouse, oh gosh, so we yeah. don't know what she was doing. Rose said she actually met up with Nicole, but it wasn't until 9.20 that night. And they met at a restaurant, and then they rode in Rose's car to the bowling alley and left Nicole's car in the restaurant parking lot. According to Rose, Nicole partied pretty hard that night. She was drinking beer and taking shots, and by the time they left at 1.30 in the morning, Nicole was really drunk. So Rose knew she couldn't drive home. So she took Nicole home in her car and they got back at about 3 a.m. Rose pulled in the driveway and parked there. She said that she parked on the side of the driveway that was closest to the front door because there was a van parked in the driveway near the garage. And she said she didn't know who the van belonged to Um, I would think that that was Becky's van. She actually didn't have a vehicle of her own. She just used her work van. So um, it would make sense for Rose not to know that it was Becky's van because Becky's not usually there when Rose is there. So, you know, that would make sense for her to be like, yeah, there was this van I've never seen before, but don't know whose it was. Uh, But she did say that when they got inside the house, nobody was actually inside. Nicole ended up getting some clothes for Rose to change into so she could stay the night that night. And when they were in Nicole's bedroom, Rose said that she noticed a gun in an open case laying on the bed. And she asked Nicole, why is there a gun on the bed? And Nicole just kind of brushed it off and said, you know, don't worry about it. She put the gun away and they didn't talk about it anymore. Later that night, Nicole told Rose that she had a really awesome present to give her. And she reached into her pocket and pulled out a key to the Mustang and told Rose that she could come over and take it for a spin anytime she wanted which is very bizarre. It's
0: literally a crime scene.
1: Yeah, it's so strange. The next morning, Nicole woke up sometime between 7 and 8 a.m., according to Rose. Rose said that she went back to sleep for a little bit, and then when she finally woke up again, her and Nicole watched TV until Nicole started getting all these phone calls, you know, at about 11 o'clock, 1130, and the calls that she was getting seemed to really upset her. Rose said that Nicole eventually told her that her roommate, Becky, was missing and that the calls she had been getting were from Becky's boss and her family.
0: At about noon, Rose took Nicole back to the restaurant where she had left her car the night before so she could pick it up. During the ride there, Nicole continues to get more phone calls and seems pretty wrapped up in whatever's going on, so Rose drops Nicole off at her car and she goes home. Nicole and Rose were supposed to go to a wake together later that afternoon – But Nicole called to tell her that she would be later than expected, but she still wanted to go. This would be about the same time that the police are actually at her house trying to find out where Becky is. And she's like, hey, sorry, I'll be late to the wake that's going on, which is already just so weird in itself. I don't know. So Rose goes to the wake without Nicole, and when she's driving home, Nicole calls her and tells her, if you get pulled over by the police, deny knowing me and deny having a MySpace account too, which it's 2006. You can't really deny having a MySpace account. Right. We all had one, whether we could or not. (laughs) So Rose is confused by this call, but she kind of shrugs it off. And so then Nicole calls her again later and apologizes because she said one of the neighbors had seen her car parked in the driveway the night before. So Rose is really confused at this point because she's been there before, you know, why would it matter that her car was there, but Nicole wouldn't tell her anything more. Nicole then asked Rose to lie some more and say that she'd been out drinking with friends and she left her car at Nicole's because she was too drunk to drive. Nicole said she wanted Rose to say these things because she was trying to protect her and keep her from getting involved. I love whenever the criminal plays the hero. Yeah. After hearing Rose's story, investigators initially believed that she was not telling the truth about her alibi, but they eventually did confirm that Rose had been at the bar at around 9 that night, and she was out bowling until after midnight. So they realized that Rose really had nothing to do with Becky's murder. But what about that other vehicle that was seen parked in the driveway? Well, with a little detective work, they were able to figure out that the owner of the vehicle was someone named Robert L. Edwards, and through further digging, they realized that Robert was Nicole's supervisor at her previous job. It was a job she had left due to the back injury she had. So officers questioned Robert about what he was doing over there, but he claimed that he was in Elk Grove Village that evening getting his hair cut. He said he was casual friends with Nicole, and up until March 15th, he hadn't even seen her for about three weeks— So it wasn't like they were best friends or anything. This turns out to be a total lie and police end up finding more than 50 calls between Nicole and Robert. P.S. If I have 50 calls between me and anyone, I've committed murder because there's no other reason I'm calling somebody 50 times. Right. That's, I mean, not really. Please, nobody take that seriously. I've known you for how many many
1: years? I could probably look at how many times, like, I could probably call the phone company and ask them to tell me specifically how many times my number has called yours, and it would be less than 50 in the last five or six years. Like, there's no way. That's crazy. And, like,
0: you've always, like, before we call each other, we've text each other and say i'm going to call right. you <laughs> we plan it out it's on the calendar <laughs> exactly so i mean this is just a huge number even for the time so robert's interviewed by police once again where they confront him with these phone calls and so that's when robert admits yes he had been in touch with nicole but it's not really what they're thinking the two of them were actually drug buddies and that he went over to nicole's on march 15th to buy drugs from her Investigators finally broached the subject of Becky's murder, but Robert evaded the questions and claimed he was too drunk that night to even remember what happened. He never told police anything he saw that night, but he insisted he had nothing to do with murder.
1: So unfortunately for Robert, this wasn't enough to keep him out of jail. He was arrested on March 23rd and charged with a felony count of obstructing justice, and his bail was set at $1 million. This high amount was due to the fact that the case was hinging on a murder investigation. The investigators tried to tie Robert to Becky's murder somehow, but there really was no evidence that he was in any way involved. The only thing that he was actually guilty of was not telling the police everything that he did see when he was there that night buying drugs. In the end, Robert was found guilty on the charge of obstructing and was given 75 days in a work release program followed by 30 months of probation. Meanwhile, they were still hard at work proving Nicole's involvement. They knew that she was lying to them, but they needed to collect the evidence to back it up. And thankfully for them, in this case, that wasn't going to be a problem. An autopsy was performed on Becky, and strangely, there were no obvious outward signs of injury. There were no defensive wounds or any sign that she struggled for her life. Even the garbage bag over her head was untouched as if she never tried to get it off. There were no bruises, scrapes, or scratches, which was kind of odd considering that most people who are shoved into a trunk do have some visible signs of various trauma on their body. The bag covering Becky's head had no dirt or debris inside of it and it was tied tightly enough that no air would have gotten through and her death was ultimately caused by suffocation. The contents of her stomach were examined, and it was determined that she died within an hour and a half of her last meal, which, according to her sister Melanie, was around 7.20 p.m. This proved that Becky died on the night of March 15th, so Nicole's claim that Becky kissed her before heading off to work the next morning was obviously all a lie. A toxicology report showed that Becky had no substances in her system. On the rear end of the Mustang, the police found and collected three fingerprints, all of which were a match to Nicole's left hand, and they also found a palm print and several fingerprints on the plastic bag that matched Nicole as well. They felt that these prints were consistent with Nicole placing her hand on top of Becky's head while shoving her into the trunk. The bandanas that were around Becky's eyes and mouth were also found to have Nicole's DNA profile on them, as well as the duct tape that was wrapped around Becky's neck. And we are going to get into the rest of the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
0: I wasn't super familiar with omega-3 supplements when I first started taking them. And to be honest, I tried a lot of different omega-3 supplements. And so I can confidently say Iwi, that's Kiwi without the K, is the best one I've ever used. Their secret is algae. It's a whole nother level than plain fish oil. And here's why we love Iwi. Iwi's proprietary form of algae actually leads to 50% more absorption
1: than the other guys. It's actually the world's highest absorption of any source of omega-3, thanks to its proprietary formula that goes right to give you more absorption, which means more health benefits for you. No matter your age, you can reap the benefits of iwi. Anyone that is all in on their healthy lifestyle, like me, will want to add iwi to their self-care supplements to help support your heart, brain, vision, and overall wellness. Plus, all of iwi's products are plant-based and sustainably sourced and farmed in the U.S., and if you're
0: not super excited to take an omega-3 supplement because you've either heard about or experienced those awful, nasty fish burps, good news, iwi doesn't have that effect thanks to their secret, which is algae. So you can take your Ewi like I do, but not worry about those nasty burps that come up later.
1: It's never too late or too early to start taking iwi. Go to EwiLife.com moms and use code moms22 to save 30% on your first purchase of any iwi product. Take advantage of this limited time offer today. IwiLife.com slash moms code moms22 for 30% off your first purchase. IwiLife.com slash moms code moms22. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or
0: prevent any disease. I love a new fun makeup or skincare product like the next person, but the things that were important to me in my youth are even more important now. Things like having high-performance beauty and skincare products that are actually made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, which is why I love Thrive Cosmetics.
1: Thrive Cosmetics really has it all. One of my personal favorites is their Overnight Sensation Brightening Sleep Mask. It really doesn't even feel like a traditional mask. I just wash my face and then put on this cooling and brightening face mask packed with antioxidants and it gives me the radiant, more
0: hydrated skin I thought I could only dream of. I'm a creature of habit and have been using the same mascara for several years. That is until I started using Thrive's Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. I can immediately see why it's their best-selling product and has over 15,000 five-star reviews. The difference with this mascara is it really mimics the look of lash extensions without damaging glue or expensive salon prices. It uses clean and nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, thanks to its tubing formula, it literally slides right off with warm water and a washcloth. You don't even need soap to get it off.
1: And you can buy products that make you feel good while doing good, thanks to Thrive's Bigger Than Beauty promise. For every product you purchase, Thrive donates to help women thrive, including women emerging from homelessness, those fighting cancer, and more. The Shoebox Project is a mission close to our hearts, and I love that Thrive has partnered with them.
0: Now is a great time to try Thrive Cosmetics for yourself. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com slash moms. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash moms for 15% off your first order. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home?
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply.
0: And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking a little about the DNA evidence that they found to link Nicole to the crime scene of Becky's murder. And so on March 21st, Nicole was charged with first-degree murder and concealment of a homicidal death but this last charge was later dismissed. Nicole's friends and family really could not accept she was guilty. They actually thought that Robert did it and that he was snooping around for drugs in the garage. Becky walked in on him and he panicked and he killed her. But this really makes no sense because his DNA and his fingerprints were nowhere to be found. And there was no evidence of a struggle to support this theory. On March 22nd, Nicole's bail was set at $1 million. According to the Chicago Tribune, Nicole was distraught and nearly in tears, and she pleaded with her lawyers to dispute what the prosecutors were saying. After the hearing, Nicole's attorney told the public that Nicole maintains her, quote, absolute innocence. She wants to get out of jail and find out who did this to her partner of seven years and to especially attend Becky's funeral, end quote. I find that statement so weird. She yeah. wants to get out of jail. It sounds very OJ-esque. She wants right. to get out of jail, find out who did this, but, like, also mostly attend Becky's funeral. What? That's so weird. So Nicole's attorney said her family was trying to raise the $100,000 cash needed to bail her out of jail. Nicole's attorney, though, brought up this solid point that said it was physically impossible for Nicole to have committed this murder. He said, quote, Nicole is 5'2", about 115 pounds, in remission from liver cancer, and with a back that prohibits her from lifting more than 20 to 30 pounds, the size of a small child, Nicole never could have carried Becky to the car and lifted her. End quote. Obviously, we know the whole thing about liver cancer was fake. I mean, did her attorney not realize that? I, I guess? guess
1: not. Yeah. He must have just Weird. taken everything she said for the truth.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. Um, but her height and weight were accurate in this. Um, Becky was five foot four, though, and she was 140 pounds. So there is a bit of a difference there. On April 6th, the Chicago Tribune reported that Becky's family claimed that Nicole's family illegally took Becky's personal items from the house they shared. On March 25th, a group of people, assumed to be Nicole's family, moved everything out of the house, including Becky's clothes, shoes, purses, family hope chest, a family quilt, antique items, furniture, and more. Thankfully, Becky's family had already removed her jewelry prior to March 25th. Understandably, though, Becky's family was devastated by the loss of her items. They contacted Nicole's family and her attorneys in hopes of getting the items back, but they received no answer. So the family's attorney actually filed a request to have the items returned. If the items had been sold, then they wanted the money. However, they really just wanted these items. There still a piece of Becky that they have to connect with her. Within weeks of her arrest, Nicole's family was able to raise the $100,000. So she was released on bail and put on house arrest at her father's house. Now, I didn't see anything that said this, but like my thought was, oh my gosh, if they sold Becky's stuff and got money for it and used that money to get her out on bail, like... Wow, I'm just. Yeah. that's not me saying that's what happened, but right, that would be
1: like terrible.
0: Oh, yeah, that is wow. Okay, I got. I got to stop because I'm like getting myself upset about a situation that I have no idea if ever you know, <laughs> even took place. So, on April 25th, 2008, she actually violated her bail by leaving her apartment and going next door to a family member's house. An officer was there conducting a surveillance check and actually saw her do it. The officer was also told by a neighbor that Nicole was seen outside every day. I will never understand that either. Like, if you're out on bail, like, people have put up money for you. Like, just right. obey the rules. You have a target rules. on your back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Days later, Nicole's arrested for a bond violation, and the prosecution asks then that her bond be revoked. Instead, the judge raised it to $100,000, which meant that her family would have to come up with another $10,000 before she could be released again. They raised the money, and then she remained out on bond until her trial. More than two years after Becky was murdered, Nicole
1: finally went to trial on April 20th, 2009. The prosecutors allege that Nicole killed Becky for life insurance money after it was learned that they both had life insurance policies on each other. They also said that part of the motive was that she wanted to live out a life free to do whatever she wanted, including to date Rose. And they said that if this were a case where a man and a woman were in a relationship and one spouse was murdered so that the other one could be with their 20-year-old girlfriend, it would be crystal clear what the motive was. But because this was a lesbian relationship, it didn't seem as obvious, even though it was the same exact thing. Messages between Rose and Nicole proved that their relationship was more than friendly. It showed a gradual increase in intensity in the months that were leading up to Becky's murder, and in the prosecution's opinion, the messages quote, demonstrated the desperation of Nicole to win Rose's affection and the lengths she would go to to ensnare, seduce, and keep Rose's affection. Nicole's attempts to conceal her relationship with Becky from Rose also made her look pretty sketchy. The prosecution theorized that Nicole killed Becky after her sister left, which was at 7.20, as we said before. They said that she used the gun, which would have been the one that Rose saw sitting out on the bed, um, in order to control Becky, and after binding her and putting the garbage bag over her head, Nicole allegedly continued using the gun to force Becky to get into the trunk, which would explain why she didn't have any sort of bruises or scrapes like she would have if somebody had forcibly shoved her in there. Nicole allegedly left Becky in the trunk to suffocate to death. At 9.20 p.m., Nicole met Rose and they went bowling and later went back to the house where Nicole pretended like she hadn't just murdered her girlfriend that night. Hmm. As for the defense, they really had quite a different story to spin. First, they alleged that Becky and Nicole were in an open relationship, and therefore Rose couldn't have been the catalyst to the murder because Becky supposedly knew about her and was fine with it. They said that they weren't really sure who killed Becky, but they knew it wasn't Nicole, and that convicting an innocent person of murder would just be another tragedy. When it came time to answer why Nicole lied to Rose about her career and her health, The defense said that, yes, she did lie about those things, but as attorneys always love to say, lying does not a murderer make. The defense actually tried to keep the messages that were saying those things um, from the jury, but the judge said that, no, they're relevant, they will be allowed in court. The fact that Nicole's DNA profile was found on several surfaces and items in the home was also explained away because Nicole lived there with Becky. So, of course, her fingerprints are going to be on their things at their house. They brought up the fact that Nicole was the one to call 911 and report Becky missing. And they kind of were using this as like a gold star point for her, which – I don't really think means anything to me personally. And even if I was a juror, that wouldn't mean anything to me personally because we hear all the time stories where the murderer calls in the murderer and, you know, it's part of their alibi to be the one to call it in thinking like, oh, they're not going to suspect me because I called it in. If anything, I'm more suspicious of the person that called it in. You know, I'm like, like how come you were the first one, you know, to respond? Like it just makes me question, you know. So in the end, the defense said that there simply just wasn't enough evidence to convict beyond a reasonable doubt, which I feel like is a stretch. I mean, Becky was found in Nicole's car. It's her vehicle that supposedly didn't have any keys that they found did have keys. But so it's like, I don't know, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that it was somebody else who did that.
0: In their own house. I mean, there's just it could not be a more convenient place for her to have killed her. I mean, it's all signs kind of point to that. Yeah, no, I agree. Sometimes you do hear stories where you're like, hmm, you know, there's something there. Not this one. Right. So Nicole took the stand and testified that she and Becky had agreed to an open relationship about a year before she was killed. Becky had wanted to have kids, but Nicole said she wasn't ready. She said their relationship was still happy and loving and that there was never a time that she didn't love Becky. Nicole claimed that Becky knew all about Rose and had even seen them kiss once at a party. According to Nicole's version of events, she had made plans with Rose on the night of March 15th. Before she left, Becky's sister Melanie came over to decorate the garage and she left around 715. Nicole said that it was Becky who went to Walgreens to buy the duct tape because they were going to use it to put away Christmas decorations in the garage. Nicole said that she tore off strips of tape as Becky packed the bins. She was just sitting on the side because of her back. She was basically the tape girl we're taking this to mean that hey yeah my fingerprints were on the tape but that's because I was the one cutting the tape for them and so during this whole time Nicole is also texting back and forth with Rose about their plans for the night according to Nicole Becky was annoyed by it because she wanted Nicole to stay home and help with decorating when Nicole went to get ready for her night out with Rose Becky allegedly told Nicole that she might stay at her sister Melanie's house that night and when Nicole got out of the shower she said that Becky was gone Nicole assumed she was either in the garage or had left for Melanie's, so she went about her business and left to meet Rose at 845. Becky's van was parked in the driveway when Nicole and Rose returned, but when she tried calling her name inside and got no reply, it was again assumed that Becky was at her sister's house. Nicole said that she woke up the next morning and started cleaning for the party and that she tried calling Becky around 10 a.m., but she didn't answer. And then around the same time, Rose woke up, so Nicole got distracted watching TV until Becky's boss called. Becky's work van was not in the driveway at this point, so Nicole assumed she had gone to work. Nicole claimed that she didn't want Becky's family to find out about their open relationship, so she asked Rose to take her back to pick up her car and to leave. She said she saw Becky's van parked on the side of the road when she was driving back picking up her car. Wow, that's very convenient.
1: So much of Nicole's testimony was actually just an attempt to explain away how guilty she actually looked. You know, she was like, hey, I let the police search my home. I called 911. Like, please don't look this way. Look the other way. Right. Um, She didn't tell them about Rose or the bowling date because Becky's father was present, she said. And uh, according to Nicole, this was her way of protecting Becky. She said that even though Becky was gone, she still wanted to protect her name. And it was no one's business what they did, you know, behind bedroom doors. So she didn't want to bring any of this up in front of Becky's father, which, okay, I guess I can give you that a little bit. But there are plenty of other opportunities to bring things up to the police when Becky's parents are not around, right? Right. So later, when asked about Rose's car being in the driveway, Nicole lied. And she said it was because she was frightened. And she said she didn't have a key to the Mustang. And the last time she opened it was the day she and Becky moved into the home. She said that she actually broke the key in the lock while moving a microwave. She also testified that when the police returned on March 17th, that was the day that she actually didn't want them to go back and search again. And she said she did that because she had talked to her father in the meantime, and he said not to speak with anybody until she got a lawyer. But when the police explained that they needed to search again in order to hopefully find Becky, Nicole said she allowed it, you know, despite what her father had told her to do. When it came to the fake MySpace profiles, she said They were just a game and Rose knew it was just a game.
0: What? (laughs) That is the most complicated game that two people could play ever. And like imagine the conversation
1: where you're like, hey, I have five different profiles and they're all me and I use them to pretend like I am people who want to date me.
0: Yeah. And 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 Hollywood's (laughs) super excited to hear about it too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a little weird. Um, so Nicole also testified that she wasn't physically capable of killing Becky, not only due to their size differences, but also due to her physical injury. She said that in two thousand and six, she was shot in the stomach, and the exit wound left her with recurring back problems. So <laughs> what happened? To a, the ice? Lo- a lot has happened to her in her lifetime. She has had and overcome liver cancer, and she's been shot in the stomach. and what else? I, I mean, she's been through all kinds of things. Nine eleven, right? Oh yeah, she was at nine eleven. She really has a quite a life story at such a young age. <laughs> also, in two thousand six, she said that she fell at work and injured her back again. And in February two thousand seven, she fell again, and also injured her back. I feel my like my goodness. I don't. I don't want to have any comments because I don't want to start falling and injuring myself. But that's a lot of slip and falls for it one. It is. Person. It is a lot of slip and falls. Yeah. So because of all these injuries, on good days, she was only able to lift about 40 pounds. And on bad days, she couldn't really pick up anything. And so her doctor told her that she wasn't supposed to lift anything over 25 pounds. And so she was saying that in March of 2007, she wouldn't have been able to lift
0: Becky because Becky obviously weighed a lot more than 25 pounds. Well, it's interesting, but if you think of somebody like in uh, high adrenaline times, like you hear about the story of a mom pulling off a car over a child, just because they say she shouldn't lift 25 or 40 pounds, whatever, it doesn't, doesn't mean, mean she can't. Don't. Right. It's not. It doesn't mean yeah. you're physically
1: incapable. It just means that you shouldn't because you are risking injury.
0: Right. Yeah. So, Okay. So under cross-examination, the prosecution was able to get Nicole to admit to, quote, profiting in eight earlier insurance claims ranging from auto accidents to workers' compensation, end quote. Dr. Mohamed Hassan testified for the defense that Nicole, quote, suffered from arthritis in her back and had received treatment for pain in November 2006. The treatment included injections of steroids and anesthetics to her spine. In January 2007, she underwent surgery to palliate her pain, even after surgery, she continued to complain of pain and numbness in her leg. End quote. On May 5th, after deliberating for 13 hours, the jury found Nicole Abu Sharif guilty of first degree murder. They did not find the murder to be quote, cold, calculated, and premeditated, end quote, which meant that Nicole would not face a life sentence. Instead, she'd face 20 to 60 years. That's
1: really interesting to me
0: that they didn't
1: think it was calculated. Or premeditated. Because it seems like all the signs would definitely, certainly point to that, you know, that there was some lead up to this. It wasn't like out of a, you know, crime of passion that she just, you know, in a fit of rage. Yeah, exactly. This was from the rest of the evidence they presented, you know, with the behavior changing towards Rose and the secret relationship. Like, it definitely sounds more like a calculated um, murder. So I was kind of surprised that the jury didn't see it that way.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. Nicole's bond was revoked, and she was sent to jail to await sentencing. The jury foreman told the Chicago Tribune, quote, the physical evidence was overwhelming, end quote. On July 28th, Nicole's sentencing hearing was held. The prosecution argued that she should receive the maximum sentence because Nicole, quote, deserves no mercy. She showed a complete absence of remorse, end quote. They said Becky was a flower in God's garden on earth, while Nicole was, quote, the bottom of the barrel, end quote. Wow yikes um but yeah no yeah okay, i get it <laughs> so the defense said that nicole should receive the minimum of 20 years and said nicole maintained her innocence nicole did not address the court before handing down a sentence judge john kinsella told nicole that he had no doubt that she killed becky especially since her fingerprints were found on the bag and the tape that were used to suffocate her judge kinsella said quote it was nicole's hand that was on becky's head when becky breathed her last End quote Powerful statement. Yeah. Nicole was sentenced to 50 years in prison. The judge didn't sentence Nicole to the maximum of 60 years because she didn't have a prior criminal history. She will have to serve 100% of her sentence before she's released. Following the hearing, Becky's family told the Chicago Tribune that they'd spent the last two years trying to figure out why Nicole killed Becky or how she was able to dupe and mislead them all into trusting her. On March 4, 2011, the Appellate Court of Illinois affirmed Nicole's conviction and sentence. In December of 2017, Nicole sought relief from her sentence on the grounds that she was entitled to a new sentencing hearing because her, quote, participation in the offense was related to her having been the victim of prior domestic violence, emotional and physical abuse by the victim, and that such evidence was not presented at her sentencing, end quote. The Court of Appeals of Illinois denied her petition. Nicole is currently incarcerated at the Logan Correctional Center in Lincoln, Illinois. Her projected parole date is March 20th, 2059, when she is 78 years old. Following Becky's murder, the adult daycare program she spent 18 months developing was renamed the Becky Klein Adult Care Program. Wow, what a story. It just never
1: ceases to amaze me how willing some people are to go to such horrific lengths just to end a relationship really is what it comes down to like there was no reason that Becky needed to be killed she I don't understand this that you have to kill somebody instead of just breaking things off with them
0: and especially because Becky had wanted to leave before right and Nicole's the one that wanted her to stay so I feel like at that point you'd know that like at some point she wasn't super into this whole thing so maybe she'd be willing to break up sure you both are on this house and that makes it a little complicated but more complicated than prison the rest of your life right killing someone that you claim to have loved the entire time right what yeah very very sad very tragic for sure but i think it's amazing that they were able to rename the program the becky klein adult yeah that's i awesome. love that and I'm, I'm
1: so happy they continued to to use the program that she developed absolutely was, like, so amazing because i loved i loved her whole idea with that so yeah that's awesome it's amazing yeah Okay. We are going to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go. Melissa came up with a silly little idea that I actually loved. I don't know. Did you see this somewhere or did you just invent this one?
0: I invented it, but I've heard of people just saying like, oh, it's weird whenever you put things in there. So I'm going to take invention credits, but only because I don't know of (laughs) a real one. But feel free to correct me. Okay. So are you going to explain what it, what we're doing? Oh, sure. Okay. So basically, if you've ever used Google Translate, you know that it can take phrases, uh, something in English, if you translate it to another language, it loses some of its translation, right? Like they, we don't always have the same phrases that other people use and idioms and whatever else. So we just were picking either famous phrases, I think this was a couple of days ago now, um, or quotes or whatever, put it through Google Translate. I moved mine around through a few languages. Boom, Me bada too. bing. Yeah. We're gonna read each other what the back to English translation is and see if the other one can guess what the original English is. Yeah. phrasing was. Yeah. Right? So
1: this actually took me a little bit of time because like Melissa said, so we put an English phrase, a common one into the Google translate and translate it to whatever random language. And then we copy and pasted whatever it was in that language and then translated that into a different language. And then we did that a few times and then translate it back to English. So it wasn't like English, you know, translating it to like a bunch of, you know, not the same English phrase. It was like actually right, right. going through multiple different languages and then back to English. So I thought it was really fun and funny. I know you said you kind of had a little bit of a hard time because some of them just translate right back to basically Yeah, I was the like, come on thing. now.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I
1: found some that kind of did that too. But I found a few that did not translate exactly back, and they were pretty funny. So do you want to do the first one?
0: Perfect, yeah. So my first one is uh, you will lose 100% of the employees you do not earn. Um. You miss
1: 100% of the shots you don't take?
0: Yeah, there you go. It's Scott, Employees Scott get getting Wayne there. I don't know. But when I saw employees, I was like, I like that. Oh <laughs> and you don't gosh. earn
1: your employees. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. OK. Um, so here's one. Uh, here's one that I did. All right. So it's do not make a wet sheet. Do not make a wet sheet.
0: How about do not make a big deal? Oh, I don't know. No. Don't be such a wet blanket. Oh. <laughs> do not make a wet sheet I like it that's a little office related too Pam says that once (laughs) there we go okay I like this one sing like everything sing like it doesn't matter play like yourself if no one has seen it and there is life on earth (laughs) what sing like everything sing like it doesn't matter play like yourself if no one's seen it and there's life on earth I have no idea sing like no one's listening, love like you've never been hurt, dance like nobody's watching, and live like it's heaven on earth. Mark Twain. Oh 20. my
1: gosh. <laughs> I guess I didn't know like the
0: actual quote.
1: You just always see those like, oh wait, no,
0: that's dance like nobody's laugh.
1: watching. I know, but it's basically <laughs> it's the, the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, this one is also awesome because it is totally different and I don't think you're going to guess it.
0: So it is, no homework is bad. How about no good is left – no good deed is left un – what is that? Punished? Oh. Unpunished? I think so. Uh, I don't
1: know. That's not the phrase, but I, kn- okay. I know what you're trying to say. Yeah. No. So no homework is bad <laughs> it was what was translated back from there's no such thing as bad publicity.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So we Wouldn't got have no homework there. is bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. This one I specifically did for you. It's a quote-ish. All right. You ready? If you decide to leave the child, I'm not on your way, but you will inevitably return. Hmm. I don't know that one either. I'm going to read it to you one more time. If you decide to leave the child, I'm not on your way, but you will inevitably return. I have no clue. (laughs) Okay. If you're determined to leave, boy, I will not stand in your way, but inevitably you'll be back again. (laughs) I just love if you let if you decide to leave the child.
1: Oh, my gosh. That is so funny. I should have known there was going to be some kind of funny. little (laughs) Mariah Carey. Yeah. All right. I just have one more. And um, you'll probably guess the phrase. But um, this one made me laugh, too, whenever I read it. The bird in his hands was the second most valuable item in the forest.
0: Ooh, is that two birds? Why can't (laughs) I even think of them? Two birds, one stone. Kill two no. birds with one stone. Oh no, that was a good a bird guess. Bird in the bushes. Bird in the hand. Worth, yeah. Okay. Worth two in the bush.
1: Yeah. It translated yeah. back to the bird in his hands was the second most valuable item in the
0: forest. <laughs> I like a second most valuable. That's awesome.
1: I know. I love it. All right. So that was kind of silly and fun. I had some other ones that like weren't really that great. I did bet your bottom dollar, and that came back to bet on a smaller dollar. <laughs> I actually really like that one. Yeah, I know. I love that one. So yeah, so that was kind of fun. Those are fun to play around with. I love those. We'll have to do that again sometime. I'm sure we'll
0: bring it again when we can't come
1: up with another idea. Yeah. Or if you guys have any phrases that we should do next time, send them in or comment and let us know. All right, guys. I think that was it for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. And... I know the next one that we have coming up, it's not technically a two-parter, but there's going to be two episodes back-to-back that are related to each
0: other. So that will be very fun. I'm excited. Have a great week. All right. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com, where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars, because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.